Welcome to the Hacksaw Podcast. I am Everett, joined by Jordan over here. Say hi, Jordan. Hey, everybody. All right, welcome in. This is episode one, where we are going to be talking about some, pretty much some highly praised, highly uh, well-received works in the world of film, in the world of music, maybe even like some little bit of business here or there, you know? We might talk about some guys that might, you know, your Elon Musks and whatnot. We're not saying he's a hack, but, you know, of that caliber. Of that I am. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to tease out a later episode, Jordan, okay? <laughs> not oh, to say... <laughs> nah, Spoilers. Well, of course, yeah, but he fucking is. Who cares about that guy? Fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck Elon Musk. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, today we're going to be talking about a particular film, uh, and it's going to be part of an anthology, you could say. Like an anthology about about a director who has been a thorn in our sides for a good decade, I'd say. Like almost a, the better half of a decade where each film is just more gross in terms of like, in terms of like, it's just the fact that he wouldn't want to show this to people, the fact that he put this together and was like, here's a completed film. Uh, we're talking, of course, about Christopher Nolan. What? Yeah, uh, Christopher Nolan. He's he's a total fucking hack, and uh, we don't like him, and we're going to give you a lot of reasons why. Exactly. We're going to go through all the different reasons why. We're not exactly going to be talking about every film he's made, He's not made that That would many. take nine years for us to talk about in depth, like, every single film that could, that, that, you know, would fit into the criteria of this podcast. Right, yeah. We're just going to talk about the things in general and making certain, we're going to highlight certain films that we think best exemplify the, the criticisms that we have. Yeah, and the first film we're going to be talking about today is his most recent film. Uh, came out in 2017, right? Yeah, summer 2017. Summer 2017. We were talking about Dunkirk. Yeah, yeah. Dunkirk is Christopher Nolan's first film that's actually based off real historical events, whereas all of his prior films have been original for the most part, outside of the, the Batman trilogy that he directed, which is based off. Also, um, would you say it's his first crack at like a period piece or like a, just like more like a his historical drama? Let me think. Well, I would consider pr the, the prestige to be. Sort oh, of a yeah. Period piece, well, see, was... you know, here's the thing, though, is that like um, I'm not, you know, uh, I was I was being a little bit uh, tongue in cheek in the intro there. Uh, he has I, I do actually like the prestige. Like I will say that off the top of my head, I'm going to try and say some good things. Mm -hmm. about Dunkirk. I'm going to try and say some good things about Christopher Nolan. It's not going to be a lot, but they'll be there. Um, but I did enjoy The Prestige. Uh, actually, I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, I chose not to watch it just because I was like, my first, when I did see it, I was like, nah, it's not too bad. I figure any movie that has David Bowie in it can't possibly be bad. Yeah, no, but today we're going to be getting into Dunkirk. And you know, there's a few things that, there's a few um subjects we're going to be kind of running criteria on here. And that is that, first of all, the marketing of this film and marketing in general in films sometimes kind of shape uh, that film's message and its purpose. Because sometimes, you know, people make film, people make movies just for fun, you know, make like a fun action movie, fun horror movie. You know what I mean? It's not really supposed to have like a message 
or it's not supposed to say anything profound or anything like that. It's just fun. You just go to the movies, have a good time, have some popcorn, you know, you you know, you might get get lucky with a girl or something like that. It's something on the background, like whatever. Yeah, going to you see know? a movie called, you know, I knew it was or Where Were You Last Night? Yeah. Starring Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, where were you last night? <laughs> starring Jennifer Aniston and um Oh, you were here the whole time. <laughs> In my heart. Um, but no, this movie is the complete opposite of that. This movie was very serious from the, from the get go, like from the marketing itself, like the marketing, even like there was, I saw some, like, uh, I don't know what you would call them, you know, but like, you know how like you go to like the movies and like in the, like, like for example, like for 1917, Mm -hmm. they had like a preview at the theaters of like, kind of like a behind the scenes type thing where it's like, it wasn't just the trailer. It was also like, Oh, this is how we show this 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 amazing scene that we shot and it's like so amazing that we have to show you how it was done and it's just a tracking shot mm-hmm. in a field somewhere but um they kind of did the same thing with with Dunkirk and the marketing thing that they did which really started to prop this movie up was they took actual like war veterans like 100 year old world war 2 british uh army veterans um to see this movie and a lot of them came out of it and were just like, it was like I was there. I was back. I was back in it. And, you know, like, it's, it's hard with this because, you know, they're, they're like 100 years old. Okay? And this movie is like the loudest fucking thing, like all of his Christopher Nolan's movies is. If you go see them in theaters, like, they, they tend to be, like, just pushing the sound system to the point of, like, it's probably peaking throughout the entire mix. Right. In order to have served in World War II at your at the earliest, I'm thinking that you would have to have been born in probably the early nineteen twenties. At least. I mean I know that there were I know that there is stories of like sixteen year old kids lying about their age and going to the service. I mean sure. that that shit that shit's been happening forever. But even then, the guys I went and saw this movie and, and you know like if they come out and they say like that, that movie fucking sucked, and and like you know, like that movie is like not this didn't happen. That's right. They're not gonna like film that and show that in the trailer. They're gonna find the one dude that doesn't even know where he's at. He doesn't know. He just gets kind of led around by his grand grandchildren, and they they he just happy that he gets to dress up in his in his uniform that day because it's awesome, and he gets to go out. I mean, that must be the best part about being a veteran is you get to dress up in that uniform with all the medals and everybody. You know, you're just you just look badass and cool. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, you know, he gets to go do that. I mean, I would do that anytime I got a chance to. I'd do that for the rest of my life. I'd just wake up in it, just go to sleep in it. But um, you never just take it off. Just never take it off. Yeah, just, you go to the grocery store in that. Like everybody's gonna like salute you. Or, like you let you cut in line. Like you know, it's like here's my here's my son. You have him. You know, it's like it's <laughs> it's, it's 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 like it's it's all gonna be. It's just gonna be great. Um, but. So they get this guy dressed up and they go take him out to see this movie and he just is looking around. He doesn't know where he is at. And this movie is so fucking loud and not in a good way that like, yeah, if you were a war veteran, you're probably having flashbacks the entire time and you probably were back there. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> but this marketing uh, really just propped this movie up to be the serious film that is supposed to kind of like, you know, be this this piece that like, sort of sheds light on the, on the men that endured this great 
uh, struggle, uh, especially in, in the in Dunkirk and in, during the Operation Operation Dynamo, which was the operation in which they went to go rescue everybody off the beach. Yeah, exactly. If you actually look up like everything that actually happened during Operation Dynamo, it's pretty insane. There was almost half a million soldiers stranded on this beach also being attacked at every now and then. It's getting strafed by, like, German planes. Like Yeah, there's they're just, just being shot at, there's bombs being dropped on them, there's soldiers getting blown up, dying. They're all miserable, they're starving, they're desperate. Yeah, they're just, like, sitting ducks on this beach, just getting... The Germans just taking pot shots at them. I mean, I would honestly rather be in a prison camp than probably on that beach. Not Absolutely. Saying, not saying a prison camp would be great. No. <laughs> Far from it. Unless you go to a prison camp today. Right. Today it's not so bad. But, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just got to, you get three, three hots and a cot, man. You get, you get, you just got a job. You got, you can go to the library. You got a TV. You can watch Jersey Shore all day. You know, it's, it's fine. Whatever. Sounds okay. You're, most people's lives in our, in the prison camps are probably better there than they were outside. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> For some of them, at least. So at least. But uh, if you if you need a bit of a historical kind of context for Dunkirk, uh, Dunkirk is a town in France. And basically, the, uh, the French and the British army were beaten back by the Germans all the way uh, to the shores of France, kind of opposite to, the, to England, like through the English Channel. And the last kind of town that they were held up in is this town called Dunkirk. And the Germans basically surrounded it, and essentially it was a siege. And there wasn't really a plan to, like, get these guys, like, evacuated in, like, a timely manner. So what you ended up with was, a, like, half a million men just sitting on the beach with nowhere to go. In front of them is the English Channel, and behind them is, like, the entire German Wehrmacht, mm-hmm. like, and, and SS, just, like, sieging. And then you have German planes flying over, and... Uh, strafing the beach you have tanks and artillery firing onto the beach and they're just sitting there waiting for the french and uh british generals to come up with a plan to get these men off the beach and they came up with operation dynamo which was just (laughs) sending ships over the channel and getting the men off and then another aspect of that is that a lot of civilians um took it upon themselves like old men or or young boys who weren't fit to serve in the military or something like that. They took their own, like privately owned their own boats and their own stuff that they own. And they sailed across the English channel to help pick up soldiers. Right. Exactly. There's a lot of civilian ships that were sent over and people who volunteered to help out just to, just to help with the overall mission. That's something that's highlighted a little bit in this movie. That's one of the, that's one of the three, I guess you could say one of the three different like points of view, I'd say points of view. Yeah. yeah like perspectives of the film, because like the, the three perspectives would probably be like the soldiers on the beach, the civilians, and then the uh, Tom Hardy who plays in the, in the air. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there's a, the, at the very beginning of this movie, the, the way it starts um, should kind of tip you off. Uh, if you if you watch any war movies, if you watch anything that's trying to sort of 
portray an event in history, especially a really like tragic or graphic or, or uh, very uh, just important but tragic moment in history. Like you talk about like, like, like Schindler's List, for example, you know, it's a movie that's like, it's talking about a very serious subject, obviously, but it's doing it with a lot of care and a lot of love to show that, uh, to, to kind of give people just a tiny bit of taste of what those people had to go through so that those people would appreciate and respect those people and also respect um, what had happened so that it will never happen again, you know, to like, just to really take that in. And it's a phenomenally effective film. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why it's a phenomenally effective film is because Steven Spielberg, the director of Schindler's List, um, who is, you know, Jewish himself and had family that suffered during the, the Holocaust, uh, he had a personal connection with it. And he had a personal, felt like, yeah, it, it felt to me watching the movie uh, that he had a personal kind of uh, drive to make this movie as effective as possible to try and give people that experience. Right. Well, with Shino's List, that film was a personal, a great personal struggle for Spielberg. He was, a lot of Jews wanted him to make the movie when they yeah. heard about the story or heard about the... Because that, that is a, I mean, that is a true story, right? Like, of, of Schindler. Uh, Oscar yeah, Schindler, Oscar yes. Schindler, yeah. Because, okay, I remember that now. It's been a little while since I've seen it, but I do remember, yeah, that was a, that was a like, word for word. That's exactly what happened, pretty much. I don't know about word for word, but... Well, yeah, it's a movie. It's dramatized in some ways, but, like, overall, the story is... But like, overall, the story is very yeah. faithful yeah. to the original events. And, yeah, he wasn't sure if he really wanted to make this movie because all the movies that he, I mean, with some exceptions, of course, but a lot of the movies he was making up to that point were not that serious. I mean, for example, the movie he made before Schindler's List was Hook. (laughs) How do you bring your, how do you bring your mind down? And, uh, you know, how do you, (laughs) all right. uh, So I'm going to have to switch a little bit of gears here. Like I'm going to have to, not to bring it down a little uh, bit. Hmm. All right. Let's get out you of this know. mindset. Um, but what? But the point I'm trying to make is that like uh, that movie is a labor of love, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, and it's it's a movie with real purpose, and it really wanted to show what those people went through, so that you could see it, and that you could try to maybe begin. You will never understand. You'll never fully understand what those people went through, but maybe you will have a bit of uh, pr- a better perspective of what happened. And Dunkirk was marketed to be a similar film in a way where it was doing what, what Spielberg did with Schindler's List, but doing that in with uh, what happened to the soldiers on Dunkirk, on the beaches of Dunkirk. And, you know, the event itself is something in British history that's, you know, it's, it's a very poignant point. In, in, in British history that people refer to a lot because it's an act of heroism. Anytime you have an act of heroism, in a country and it becomes part of their lore, it becomes this like very, this like in, this cemented thing in that, in that country's lexicon. Sure. Exactly. You know, one thing, for example, you could think of would be the, the people who rose the flag up on Iwo Jima. Exactly. You know, yeah. 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 I mean, it's our like fathers. It's that, super... icon, that, uh, that iconographic, that, that, or, that iconic image. Right. It's, it's like highly patriotic, but like in a good way, I'd say. Sure. Like, I mean, usually, like, patriotism starts to become nationalism, like, real quick. 
But there are certain things like back then, like, you know, that were very patriotic, that it, it's good to be patriotic. And that's, that's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's good for Britain to be patriotic about Dunkirk because it was a great thing that the civilians of Dunkirk did by risking their own lives because crossing the English Channel wasn't just like taking the boats out and crossing the channel. There's like German submarines. There's still planes flying over, shooting at them. It was basically like a 50-50 chance that you're going to make it. Mm -hmm. And this movie cuts corner after corner this, it takes away from every single aspect of the event itself and just softens every edge of it. It softens every edge. It takes away every bit of like true, deep, kind of patriotic moments. It just and puts it out in a way that's like we, he cared more about the theater experience than he did about sort of immortalizing the event. Yeah, well, what you said right there, I think, kind of nails it about softening the edges. I mean, this movie is PG-13, but I think it, this movie really could have probably been PG-rated if it wasn't for the one... There's, <laughs> there's one scene... There's one scene with a guy with, like, a bloody tissue on his neck. Oh, I think even that would have flown, but there's a, there's actually one scene where someone says fuck. Oh, they get your one fuck. They got the one fucking. Yeah, the one PG-13 fuck. That's always, you know, when one I was a soldier kid, says that, and then it's like, oh, well, PG-13 right yeah, there. I figured that out when I was younger, that you could get one fuck yeah. for 13. And for PG, you could get, like, one ass. You can say shit in a PG movie. Because I think in Home Alone 3, he says horse's ass. Yeah. And that's a PG movie or something like that. And I, when I was a kid, I was like, ha! <laughs> well, because I remember I saw a movie as a kid called Fly Away Home with Anna Paquin. And, <laughs> Is uh, that the one with the geese? That's the one with the geese. Okay, yeah. I remember watching that in, like, school. Like, in, like, <laughs> like, science class or something. My teacher was hungover that day. Well, like, <laughs> one of the few things I remember from that movie still, because I haven't watched it since I was, like, maybe nine, was uh, there's a scene where the... Something's flying over uh, a hunter, and he goes, "Holy shit!" Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, he said shit. Yeah, um, yeah. You got his one shit in. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, this this movie. Uh, when I talk about softening the edges, uh, you can just start with the first scene uh, of the film. The very first scene. It's supposed to like it. It shows uh, a bunch of uh, British soldiers in the streets of Dunkirk. And they're kind of like around some defensive positions and there's this like kind of uh, faux like attempt at tension where they're just kind of waiting for the Germans to kind of come in. They're just sort of like standing or, or just like at their positions and uh, German propaganda pamphlets start falling from the sky. And the first thing I noticed is that like, wow, for, for a, a town that has been incessantly shelled and strafed by aircraft uh, shot at by tanks, um, just and just small arms fire. Um, there's not a freaking speck of dust. There's there's not a broken window. There's not a piece of paint that's chipped off of this, of the street. It looks in, it looks better than like the best parts of downtown Seattle. Yeah, for comparison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In reality, there'd be so much damage done to these buildings. Oh, I've seen pictures. Like, there's pictures of it. It looks like a ruined hellscape. And, you know, why are we, why are we talking about this right now? It's because when you're setting the scene, 
the scene itself is going to set your tone, like just the setting around it. And if you have this pristine, idyllic town that looks like it hasn't been touched by a graffiti artist, let alone a war, um, it's it's gonna like it's gonna soften what the experience is around you. You know, it's gonna soften the look of the film. Like if you look at like you know Saving Private Ryan, for example, every time they go into a town, it's always like every single building is like crumbling. You know, there's like whole like they're every single building has like a giant hole in it that they're sitting in. You know, it's like all the streets are covered in like bullet shells and there's there's grenade impacts craters everywhere. You know, it's just like it looks like a war zone. Right, exactly. Look, if especially for a war movie, I think one of the most important things you have to do is really set the scene at the beginning. Establish if, your tone. You need to establish your tone and you need to have some sort of impact with that. You know, you need to really bring people in. You know, Saving Private Ryan's probably the the example that most immediately comes to mind, but if I think of all the great all my favorite war movies, um, uh, I think another really good example would be the opening scene in in Glory, uh, which is one of my favorite films, which opens with uh, a giant. Well, not a giant, but isn't that I, open with like the town that's being like set on fire, or is that later? I think I'm thinking uh, of something else. I, that's not quite what happens, but in the opening of Glory, it just opens with just a battle scene, and it's just this chaotic, brutal battle and then after the battle's over you just see hundreds or thousands of soldiers all just wounded or dead on the battlefield and then it just really just it just it sets the mood it sets the the mood it brings you in yeah uh christopher nolan tries to set the mood by having paper fall from the sky saying that uh, and it (laughs) he has like eight by eleven copy paper like thrown into a fan and blown onto the set yeah, just picture uh, a giant bag. Uh, yeah, somebody, some intern on a from, ladder. Uh, from above the cameras, just yeah. dropping things. Yeah, it's just like the Germans are like, you know, just be like, hey, like, surrender or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, the, the propaganda is like, you are here, we are here. You're, you're fucked. And like, surrender now. And then as we go on, um, we, this, this same thing, the movie never establishes any set of, like, feeling that these men are in any immediate danger like throughout the entire film like yeah well yeah of course like you know abstractly if you think about what's actually the movie's actually referring to yes they are in danger the entire time but like the movie never really fully makes the the viewer feel or anybody in the film feel like they're in that much danger it's like after the uh the scene of like the soldiers in the very beginning walking through the town and then like the germans starting to shoot at them and stuff uh, we get to the next scene, which is into the beach, and we get our first look at the beach. And uh, Jordan, uh, you just got back from Hawaii, right? Yeah, I did get back from Hawaii recently. And would you say that the beaches of Hawaii were better, or did the beaches in Dunkirk look better? They looked about the same. <laughs> Actually, I'd say the beaches on Dunkirk look a little bit better. It looked, It looks a little bit cleaner. Looked really clean. Like, like I imagine at least in Hawaii on the beaches, there's a bit of trash here or there. Yeah, or at least some footprints. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing you notice when you go into there the scene. There are at least some track marks. There's no track marks. Like, I, I looked at a photo of, like, the garbage beach. here or there. Yeah, I looked at a photo of, like, somebody snapped, like, actually who was there. Uh, and dunk, uh, there during the Dunkirk evacu- evacuation. And there is not an inch of sand that's not covered with either a dead body, 
a huddle of soldiers, a broken down truck, a fucking shell hole, barbed wire, or just like piles of military garbage and crates and just like all sorts of filth everywhere. It looks like a nightmare. It looks like a hellscape. And you go onto this beach in this movie and there's like 10 dudes standing there. That's supposed to represent the whole 500,000 people that are there. Hey, well, hey, let's, let's not exaggerate. I'd say there are at least, a, there's like 50. <laughs> there's like, there's like a small handful of guys. Like this is a major Hollywood, like, this is a major, well-funded movie that couldn't even get extras. Yeah, there's there's also, I think, hardly any vehicles, hardly any other. I don't kind remember of a single vehicle. I think I saw a truck when the camera panned over. I didn't. One direction. I, I don't even remember that. Like I, I remember just them sitting, like just standing at attention on the beach, and then I remember like behind each kind of like small block of soldiers there was like a neatly laid out like set of crates and like that was it that was their clutter that was their that's how they're going to show chaos that's how they're going to show like that's how they're going to set their tone is that we're basically uh it's pe class (laughs) you know it's pe class and we took a field trip to the beach and we're all standing getting picked for kickball yeah can't we just play with the giant parachute yeah (laughs) that was fun that was a great day in school that was always good parachute was super fun that would have been funny if that just happened. Yeah. It looks like, I don't know, it looks like if you pan the camera a little bit more to the right, they would have had the volleyball court. Yeah. You know? And I'm pretty sure that, like, a lot of this has to do with the fact that this movie was shot in Dunkirk. Right. Like, today. Like, the modern Dunkirk. It was shot there. And uh, Christopher Nolan probably would have had to got permission from, you know, the town itself. And the town was probably like, oh, sure, yeah, you can film here, but just don't, you know, mess it up. Like, don't, you know, we got Airbnbs all up and down this place, and, you know, we can't have you, you know, shutting anything down. Right, you know, we can only have the sausage and cheese cart set aside for so long. <laughs> right, you got... the owner starts to get pissed. <laughs> yeah, you got you got about a week, Chris, uh, to figure this out. A couple hours a day. Yeah, uh, because it would be just so hard for you to find a beach somewhere in the fucking world to film this thing. Yeah, and make it look like it's supposed to be supposed to look. For some weird reason, like this is like in his uh, repertoire and like how you would describe his style. Like if you look up Christopher Nolan's style on Google, you know, like there's a short little blurb about it, which is <laughs> Christopher Nolan uses uh, documentary style lighting and real world locations. Uh, cool. cool. So that means you don't, like, actually use any lighting to, like, enhance your film in any way. You just film it as is, uh, which is going into my point, which is uh, Dunkirk almost entirely, like, the evacuation itself happened at night, which makes sense because it's it's it's, night, it's the 19, early 1940s. Uh, aircraft don't have, like, you know sophisticated radar or anything so germans are gonna german planes are gonna have a harder time finding their targets at at night as they are during the day it would be ridiculous to carry out this operation during the day and they didn't and i just think that like you know even if you could think this movie if the movie really did take place mostly at night like mostly operation stuff like that uh you would add to the tension because like the soldiers would also have a hard time seeing things coming at them and you could have even more chaos that way yeah, there's a portion of this movie that does take place at night, but it's a very small part of it. The majority of it takes place during a very bright, clear day. Yeah, because that's the day he had to film. 
because Christopher Nolan, like, he's not going to, like, work at night. He's going to he's gonna work in the morning, and then 5 o'clock comes around, and he's going to turn it off, and, you know, that's going to be it. And if he's using – he's not using any actual lighting, he has to shoot in the day. I'm going to say something real quick, which is that I think something – that started making Christopher Nolan movies worse was his, I don't want to say obsession, but his penchant for just wanting to use IMAX cameras for everything more and more and more. It started with The Dark Knight, where he filmed some of the action scenes in IMAX, and they looked really cool in Dark Knight, if you think about like the opening bank heist and, yeah, the action scene that takes place over in, on the streets of Gotham. It's done in this very big wide end yeah like when the joker is like leaning out of the truck with the rocket launcher and stuff like it's 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 yeah the part where he flips the semi yeah 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 it's all this big open street like yeah of course that looks cool in imax yeah yeah it's gonna look cool every time so he started experimenting with imax early on you know 10 years prior to making this film and ever since then he's just been wanting to use it more and more and more and more to the to to the point where in Dunkirk, it's, I want to say IMAX takes up somewhere between 60 and 70% of all shots or all filming of the entire thing. Which, which you say that, but like, I, I, I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to detract from a film. No. You know, it's like just like the IMAX camera is, is there to give these grand, huge shots, like to make, add scope. To add, add like to to have these like wide expanses. It's basically like the cinematographer's dream um, to have these like high power cameras that can capture real light and re- things in like their real setting, mm-hmm. you know. But it doesn't pair with somebody who doesn't use like stylistic lighting or doesn't use stylistic camera work. You can't. It, it, he's just thinking that you can get an IMAX camera, set it on the beach, and like you can have an Oscar film. I feel like what he's doing is he's taking the, the cameras themselves are taking precedence over the content. Yeah, it's like a tech demo. It seems to me that when you are his his method of like wanting to use the IMAX camera to its full potential is again the mindset of he's thinking more about the theater experience than he is about the content of his films. Like he's thinking more about when you, because I know I've been, I've seen a movie in theaters where I come out of it and I'm like, wow, that was what a you know experience that was, like what a, you know like that was insane. But then like you think you let it kind of like sit with you for a couple of days and you're like, huh, I don't know, like this happened and that happened and this didn't make any sense and that character was kind of dumb and the acting was terrible and what what did I like about this movie you know it's like why did I come out of this the, the theater like all like excited and then like a few days later I'm just like huh that actually kind of sucked that reminds me of when I saw Prometheus oh that's a great example yeah coming out of Prometheus was like wow like it was it was such a like a kind of a bendy experience and then you start to actually think critically about the film you're like wow that was like one of the worst movies I've ever seen yeah it's one of the most visually spectacular movies I've ever seen and then I saw it with a group of friends, and then we were all initially pretty impressed with it, and then we all stood around in the parking lot for a good half hour or so just talking about it, and then... Slowly unraveling. As we kept talking, we just started realizing, as we actually started using our brains, we started thinking, oh, wow, that movie was terrible. 
Yeah, it's 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 one of the, it's it's one of the most like just I don't know like I kind of I want to save Prometheus for like a later discussion. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't. I don't want to get into saying, it. For example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to save Prometheus for for another time because uh, that is that's a whole another can of worms. Like, I want to move on here to uh, one of the biggest problems in almost every Christopher Nolan film, like besides just the way it looks is the writing and just every single film just seems to like kind of suffer in this aspect. And I'm not saying it's easy to write a film like at all. Like most films have not perfect writing. It's, it's I mean like what is even perfect writing, you know, like it's just, it's, it's one of those things I feel like is somewhat unattainable, but it's really, it's a lot easier to point out bad writing. It's like a lot easier. Like that, that's, that rears its ugly head and it sticks out like a sore thumb. It's true. There's also a lot of bad writing that's, that masquerades as good writing. Which is, you know, you could probably put that to, like, most of these films. I feel like, for one thing, if I want to say something here kind of positive about it, is that he does, he is very choosy. It's not an overly worded script, you know what I mean? Like, he, he does, I do, like, appreciate a movie that tries to tell its story a lot more visually than actually sitting there and explaining to you all the context of what's going on. It's like, no, it's like, don't tell me, show me what's going on. And that, that's the point of your movie. The point of a film is to like, you know, <laughs> is to not just sit there and like, like yell the, the exposition to you. It's supposed to like show you and you're supposed to kind of figure it out as you go along. For some weird reason, overly expository dialogue, like seems to be like, if you ever watch like a Korean film, Mm-hmm. There, there are some great, great Korean horror films, but like a tendency with like Korean directors, it seems probably true with other directors too, but a tendency in like Korean film, which uh, doesn't necessarily make it bad, but it's just kind of a quirk about it, is that they do tend to have a lot of like over-expository dialogue, where it's just like, I am the man from here, and I, this is my journey, and this is what I'm going to do, and you are this, and like, yes, I am this, and this is what I am going to do, and this is my motivation. And it's like a, the actual conversation goes like that. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually like it's one of those things that I think is not just in Korean film but in a lot of Asian film in general. Yeah, it's very like efficient. Like we're not going to have any nuanced kind of dialogue here. We're just like dialogue is like merely like a means to like to give information to the audience. Right. Exactly. And sometimes it works very well. For instance, one of my favorite Japanese films is a movie that came out about ten years ago called which I got to show you soon, is this film called Confessions. And the first 20 minutes or so is just the main character monologuing. Right. <laughs> okay. And just setting the stage and just bringing you all up to speed on, here's what's going on. Yeah. And then the movie really starts and it just works. Right. But without... I'm not saying you can't... I'm not saying over like super expository dialogue can't work. I'm just saying that it's it seems to be a quirk in that culture to do so. With this movie, with Dunkirk, it's like the opposite kind of approach to it, to where we're going to have very minimal dialogue. I mean, this is true for a lot. I feel like more recent war movies, for example, tend to do this a lot. Like when we saw 1917 was the same way. Mm-hmm. With this, it's like the dialogue that they did choose to use is just some of the most out of character, just like offhanded. Like it's almost like sound bites. You know, it's just the characters, if we could call them that, just stating the themes of the film. 
which are war is hell, heroism, patriotism, bravery, king and country. You know, <laughs> there's like literally there's a scene where like the there's like two generals standing on the dock and they're just watching all the guys on the beach. They're watching the ships coming in. And they're always there. They're like, talking about like, like yeah, there is a war going on. There sure is, general. Uh, the war is bad. Yeah, it sure is. You know, <laughs> like uh, it sucks. It is. This is not going too well. No, it's not. You know, <laughs> right. And that scene plays out a number of times actually. It's like these soldiers or these officers, commanders. I don't know what their rank is. I'm not. A, I'm not a. No, we're, we're, we're not going to pretend to know anything. I'm about not a military this. nerd. Okay, I don't. You know, I I have other interests, but yeah, it's these guys standing around on a dock. The war is occurring all around them. They realize the war is occurring, and then one of the officers just sort of opens his mouth and. Like I said, just spews out one of the themes of the film, and then, then ominous or inspirational music starts occurring in the background. And oh, they, I don't know if it ever goes away. Yeah, the music in this film is like just just somebody holding down one chord on a on a synthesizer and just kind of letting that go throughout the whole thing. <laughs> Yeah, I want to briefly mention the score for this film, which was done by Hans Zimmer, who has become the composer for all of the Christopher Nolan films, starting with Batman Begins. And I really like Hans Zimmer. He's made some amazing scores in the past for films such as Gladiator, the Thin Red Line, Braveheart, all, you know, the Lion King. Um, yeah, I mean, like, this is a very accomplished... Prince of Egypt, that's, you that's, know. That's an accomplished uh, resume in, in, in film score. Like, I mean, all those are great. Like, I mean, he's... I just feel like, you know, it's not that I have anything bad to say about Hans Zimmer, obviously. Like, he doesn't have anything to prove. No, but... Whatsoever. Well, but I just, you know, every once in a while... And actors do this, too. They do it a lot. They just kind of phone it in. Well, he just takes one simple motif and just hits it over and over and over and over again. You know, it's like if you're telling a joke and you're just playing off one yeah, word or one phrase. It's like a like 1980s comedy where, like, you know, you just talk about gay people in, like, 45 different ways. And that's just funny. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. Pretty much. <laughs> and it started with the Batman movies and then carried over. This one is just a... At least at least the Batman movies had a theme. Like, it there did. Was, there was, like, Batman had a theme. Like, it was, like, like, I mean, I can't even think of it right now, but it was just, you know, the... It goes... I think that's Doom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, okay, it's not the most musically complex thing, but you remember it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and honestly, like, uh, and, Bat Batman movies, it wasn't as, like, it wasn't such a huge component as you would think a score would be in this film. Mm -hmm. You know, in this film, I feel like it was really, like, that's one, that's one area. And I think it's something that people tend not to notice. They're like, people are like, why was that scene so flat? Like, why... Why did why is the tone of this movie like kind of like 
a little bit wishy-washy. It's like sometimes the score has a really big impact on like how you're kind of supposed to feel during a scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 the tone of the movie. And like I said, this movie lacks tone. It lacks any sort of like real immersion. It, it doesn't pull you into anything. It's just sort of a flat, lifeless, flopping carp on a, the deck of a boat. Right. The the number one word I would use to describe the score for this film is incessant. It never stops. It and like I said, it runs off one main theme or or motif, you could say, which is kind of a, a TikTok. So, right, yeah, yeah, because we, we got a time limit. The Germans are coming, yeah. The clock is ticking. We don't have much time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the three different perspectives, it's a one day or one hour or one week, and you have this hammering out in the background constantly to different degrees of volume. And... I feel like it's there because otherwise you wouldn't feel the tension as much. If you watch this film and turn the sound off, if there was a way to watch this film and just turn off the background, the, the score for yeah, the film. Yeah, it's like in a video game. You just like turn off the in-game music. Right, yeah. If, you could, if there was a way to do that, like I did this actually while I was watching the film recently in preparation for this podcast where I just turned off the volume i just watched it with just subtitles on and no sound Mm -hmm. and it's just people doing stuff yeah it's it's like hardly any real sense of tension or dread you don't even see it in their faces really like you don't even really see it in the actors because like if you look at pictures from from dunkirk you look at the people you see like guys that are like just they're having to huddle in a in a in a bomb crater as so because there's no cover there's on a beach there's on a beach and they're getting strafed by airplanes there's like it's pretty much just a roulette wheel on who's gonna get hit and so you have guys just kind of like hiding under dead bodies hiding in shell holes like kind of like just crouching just digging into the dirt to get any little bit of cover and there's no there's that that feeling of desperation, that feeling of just like being so close to the edge is just lost. Uh, I don't, it doesn't feel it at all. It feels like this whole movie is just waiting in line. It's just waiting for your plane to come in to like taxi so you could get on the fucking plane. It's just waiting for your <laughs> gate to open. It's just waiting for the fucking, like, you know, we're here, we're out here in Seattle. It's like we have ferry systems uh, to get from island to island. And it's like, it's just, you're just sitting in your car in line waiting for the ferry to come. Yeah, pretty much. You know, and it's just, <laughs> it just, and then it comes and then it's over. You know, another, there's just so many factors that kind of add to this overall feeling of flatness. And we don't really have any character, like, differentiation. Like, there's no real, like, character, like, that stands out to me in this film. They're all kind of like these face, these nameless kind of faces. Like, they kind of blend together. There's nothing that really sets anybody apart. I mean, like, who is the main character in this film? Like, who is. Who are we following? Like, whose perspective is it? The Killian Murphy's? Not really. There's like, you know, there aren't really any memorable characters in this film, like you just said, because they're they're not interesting. No, they don't. Well, they don't attempt to like even build on any of the characters at all. They don't attempt to like. They don't start it off by saying like, oh, like one character maybe he's arrogant and he thinks that this whole thing is like 
we're just going to get rescued and everything's going to be fine. And then maybe by the end of the movie, when it's been a, a few days and they've been strafed a couple of times, maybe he's getting a little less confident, you know? Right. There's and, none of that. And, you know, and this is a problem, an ongoing problem with most of Christopher Nolan's work is that he tends to get an absolutely stellar cast to perform in his films. Oh, yeah. But he just doesn't really do that much with them. This film has certain actors in it that I really like. Like, I really like Tom Hardy. I really like oh, Kevin yeah. Murphy. I really like Kenneth Branagh. I really like... The whole cast is in this movie is, is great. That's the one thing... Yeah, I agree with you. That's the one thing that Christopher Nolan always manages to get these great actors. I mean, he gets Leonardo DiCaprio. He gets Ken Watanabe. He gets, like, all these great actors. And it just... He doesn't get anything out of them. And that is the mark of a hack director. Because that is a director's job. At the end of the day... A director's job is to get the most out of his actors, okay? I mean, look at, like, uh, Werner Herzog, for example. <laughs> like, you know, that guy, there, there is so many stories. I mean, he, this is an extreme example, obviously. But if you look up any sort of, like, uh, listen to, like, maybe a podcast with Werner, like, or an interview or something like that, and he's talking about what he did to get, you know, the, a great performance out of his actors. I mean, it's insane. It's like an episode of Fear Factor. It's like, it's crazy. Like, he'll just, like, drop, be like, oh, we're making a movie about a guy lost in the jungle. Well, we're going to drop you in the fucking jungle for a couple of days, and then we're going to come find you, and we're going to start shooting the scenes. Right, You yeah. know? It's like, that's obviously an extreme example, but, you know, obviously not every director has to do the extreme Werner Herzog-style stuff. But, I mean, he that's a true director trying to capture something on film. He's trying to capture real stuff or real emotions, even though he's shooting a movie, a fictional movie. Right. Some of my favorite directors are absolute tyrants on the production of their Lars films. von Trier. <laughs> I was actually just going to say, two of my favorite directors, Lars von Trier and Stanley Kubrick, would be great examples. Stanley Kubrick tormented Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall on the set of The Shining. How do you think Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson delivered those absolutely amazing performances that we remember? It's because he fucked with them the entire time. It made yeah. him do take after take after take. He wore them down. Breaking them down Be so far. Because The Shining is about somebody having a mental breakdown, right? Yes. It's about like the unraveling of somebody's mind. And he was like, what's the best way to have my actor, you know, get into a character that's mind is coming apart. Well, I'm going to fucking tear his mind apart, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and Lars von Trier has done this <laughs> a number of times as well. One of the examples that immediately comes to mind to me is when he made the film, uh, dancer in the dark, uh, which is a film starring the, the, uh, musician and singer, uh, Bjork Bjork is he was a total asshole to her and really fucked with her the entire time to the point where, yeah, by the end of the film or just throughout the whole process, she ended up just hating him and never wanted to make another movie ever again. That's fine, though. He got the performance he needed. But you know? what we got on screen was absolutely fantastic. I mean... Which doesn't the... necessarily justify it, but... Right. But the thing is, yeah. is that like, there's there's one common denominator here between Large Venture and Kubrick. Um, the common denominator is that they're artists. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, there's a, and not every director is an artist. Just because you're a director doesn't mean that you are artistic in any way. Okay, 
like some directors like you know get their start shooting commercials and stuff and they just take that you know they 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 made lexus commercials for a number of years and they're like well i have enough money now and i really want to make a real movie so they just like buy an imax camera and they start making movies you know when there's no real artistic vision that drives it because i mean that's what Stan kubrick and and all those other directors have is that Christopher Nolan doesn't have, at least doesn't appear to have. I'm not going to say outright that he doesn't, but it just from what I've seen is that all of his movies lack any sort of like real artistic vision, yet they kind of insist upon themselves that there is one. Right. And that's the phrase that I think really brings it all together, which is his films in this film especially, it, it's, it insists upon itself. It insists upon itself that you're supposed to like it, that you're supposed to love it. Um, I don't want to talk too much about this, but 1917 does the exact same thing. That movie sucked, by the way. Like, that movie <laughs> was so bad. From the very first scene, I leaned over to Jordan, and I was like, oh, fucking, <laughs> here we go. Like, here we go. It's going to be another fucking garbage director doing some gimmicky crap to like and hide it behind patriotism and hide it behind the fact that it's the hundred year anniversary of world war one. And, um, just, just try to like, just pour schlock over everybody and everybody is going to like, it's like that movie is like the exact same thing as like somebody, uh, pouring out a fine wine and then out of a bottle and then just like pouring in shitty box wine and giving it to somebody. And then that person like does the full sommelier on the shitty box wine. You know, like, it's like, it's like, you now it's like, we know you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Cause that was freaking, uh, that was this box wine from Safeway. But yeah. here's a real puzzler for you. Would you say 1917 or Dunkirk are, which film would you say is better? I would say Dunkirk is better. Mm-hmm. Um, only because Dunkirk had a few bright moments where, um, like I said, I'm going to try and say some good stuff about Dunkirk here. I did enjoy the... Every scene with Tom Hardy. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because this film does take place with, well, it, the, the whole premise of the film is it's set with it, it's set with three different perspectives to kind of break apart the, the timeline a little bit, which I think on a certain level is, is, is interesting. I don't think a whole lot really is. I don't think a whole lot really comes from it exactly. But, but there are a few moments where the pace sure. has kind of changed up a little bit and we get a different perspective and it's a, it's a fresh thing than just looking into a bunch of young strapping lads that have freshly pressed uniforms that just came out of the costuming warehouse standing on a beach trying their very, very best to look sad. <laughs> right. But yeah, I would say one thing I did enjoy watching this film on on repeat viewings was the aerial combat scenes in this film are really well done. I really like some pretty impressive shots done here. And just, I think, I think that within that perspective of the film, which unfortunately is the the shortest one in there. And to be fair, it's kind of meant to be because it's only supposed to take place within. It kind of shows everything. I think it can show, or it shows, it covers everything. I think it wanted to cover. Yeah. And like, yeah. And like, like I was saying, it's it's all meant to be within one hour of real time. Right. So obviously it can't show or take up as much screen time as the perspective that's supposed to be one day or, or one week mm-hmm. even. So one thing that – one little detail, which I think is honestly – and this is not even that big of a thing. This is kind of how bad this movie is. But the one the, – my favorite thing about Dunkirk 
happens in the during the dogfighting scene when Tom Hardy and the planes fighting the German planes um, is that the way that the sound and atmosphere is portrayed inside the cockpit mm-hmm. um, where like you don't like the score I think stops and you just kind of have this sort of like silence sort of like it feels like you're sealed into the aircraft you know like it kind yeah. of puts you inside of it like it, it's just it has that kind of airtight seal where the sounds outside the aircraft are somewhat muffled. Like when you're being, when the scene is taking place inside, when it's outside, obviously it's different, but like when you're actually in Tom Hardy's like first person kind of perspective, uh, the sounds going on around it feel very uh, accurate and immersive. You know, it feels, it feels it's, it's cool. Like I like how like the, the sound is sort of choked and muffled and you feel like you're in there and pretty much all you hear is like his breathing and like him operating the aircraft and stuff and like that's a nice touch like it's a cool thing because you could just be like independence day like and just have like this blazing score going on the entire time and just not having like any sort of like you know real world sort of like immersion whatsoever right yeah there's a really (laughs) those parts are done really well and also whenever one of the aircraft gets hit Right, you, you really, really feel, feel like it's got thud to it, you know, which is also, I mean, and again, it's it, we didn't get too far, but this just goes right back to, this is another aspect of the theater, quote-unquote, quote theater experience, where that is fine. I'm not saying that the theater experience is, you know, something you should be avoided or anything like that. I'm not saying there's anything bad about going to see a movie that sounds really good on giant speakers and looks good on a giant screen. I'm saying that, like, what happens when you watch this movie at home? Like, what happens when you watch it outside the theater? Is, like, is it only supposed to be seen in the theaters? And if not, like, I just think that's dumb. I don't think you sh- movies should be, like, things that you only have to see in the theaters. Like, you know, maybe some, like, maybe, like, the, the most recent Godzilla, for example. Yeah, I'm probably not gonna, Yeah, I'm probably not going to watch that again, but I had a ton of fun watching it in the theater. You know what okay. I mean? Because I'm not saying it's a good movie. Like, for for example, like, it's the acting is awful. The, the, the writing is literal fucking a tub of diarrhea. But the fucking... It's giant monster battles on a huge screen with a giant sound system, and it was badass. Like, I liked it. Um, but I'm not going to sit at home and watch it. You know? Like, I'm not going to, like, watch it on my laptop. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's, it's not, that's not going to happen. Right. And that's the way that Nolan envisions all of his movies must be seen, is that unless you see it in a Cinerama-type auditorium, there's really... Now, no how way. pretentious is that? He really is, he really is insistent upon that. Well, for instance, he has a new movie coming out that, that has been... Uh, been advertised called Tenet and not much has been revealed about the movie or really what it's about and the film is set to come out this July and they're just wrapping it up right now I guess finishing up the the editing and stuff but he's actually considering holding it back if theaters aren't open again by then because yeah because i well, the film's not worthy to be seen yeah it's not worthy setup. yeah there's tons of a bunch of other movie studios are uh making movies that are supposed to come out in theaters available for streaming during the pandemic right which is you know i wish i think that that should just be a thing anyways 
you know, I don't think you should have to go to the theater to see a movie. I think it's like that those times are coming to an end. Like that's why movies are the way they are is honestly because of streaming. I think is that since we have such access to them at home, you have to make it worth it for people to see a movie in the theater, which is why all these movies don't hold up at home at all. It's like, it's like all of Christopher Nolan's movies. He's trying to make something that is like kind of like a, you know, on the surface level seems like a very, like a very tasteful, a very, a very uh, iconic type style of, of filmmaking. Yet, uh, it doesn't hold up at all outside the theaters because you don't have the sound system. You don't have the big screen. You don't have that kind of experience. So it's like, if you're going to make that, just make Godzilla, you know, (laughs) like just make, just like, why are you like, like advertising your movies to be these like grand events when it's like, you could just be making Godzilla movies and like, that's fine. And that belongs in the theater. That's a theater experience. I mean, movie theaters are becoming amusement parks and movies are becoming amusement park rides. Right. Well, this was a point that, Martin Scorsese brought up last year. Oh, yeah. Too much controversy. Yeah, I'll leave him alone. He's right. <laughs> I agree with him. He was Most talk- people do. He was talking about how, just as a quick aside, he was talking about how certain films coming out, like the, the Marvel films, aren't really films. They're more like amusement park rides. And he says that... It must be really sad for him to see that. I mean, I agree with them. I think that, you know, if you're somebody like Martin Scorsese, like Spielberg with all kinds of stuff, the people that actually put love and care into their movies and it's, it's, it's their art, it's their stuff. It's their, like, you know, they, they're trying to make it to where these movies last. That's why you can watch Goodfellas today and it holds up, you know, it's, it's because he, it was designed to be that way. It's designed to be a movie that, that is timeless you know, maybe not implicitly, but just the fact that you put that much care and love into it makes it timeless. It, it, it shows on the screen. Yeah, and even someone like uh, even someone like Scorsese, who's very much into traditional filmmaking, he doesn't really like shooting on digital. He's mm-hmm. you know more traditional in his approach. In well, yeah, he's been making movies since like what the like the seventies, early seventies. Yeah, say. so yeah. yeah, I mean anybody who's like they're not gonna you know yeah they're, they're gonna be very protective about their medium. Yeah, and he's you know he's pretty old now, and but even even he's very open minded. He said that well, his latest film, The Irishman, he was talking about it and talking about how it was being released simultaneously both in theaters and on Netflix streaming. And he said, well, I prefer people do go see it in theaters. I have to be open-minded and realize that it's also good for people to have more options for how to see your film. Right. And I think that's a good thing, especially we consider the amount of stuff being released there's so much. There's so much. I mean, I, 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 it's hard for me to even keep... Every time I turn on, like, one of these the streaming platforms, it's, like, there's a new giant thing. And, like, I, I mean, like, everybody's, like, bitching at me because I haven't watched Tiger King. Yeah, me neither. You know? It's, like... <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to. I'm probably not going to. It's, like, well, I mean, I, I have been hearing about Joe Exotic for a while, and I kind of got the gist of it, and then that story came out, and it just... Yeah, but... Anyways, um, the... Uh, Act of Martin Scorsese putting it out on Netflix as well as in theaters, to me, 
shows that he's confident enough in his movie that you don't need the theater experience for it to hold it up because he's confident that he made a good movie. Personally, I didn't care for The Irishman that much, but I do respect it, and I respect Martin Scorsese, like, no matter what he does. I mean, like, after watching Hugo, I still respected him. <laughs> well, he's, he's just, he's <laughs> willing to adapt. He's to willing to times. adapt. He's willing to put something out. And, like, by the way, I'm just going to put this caveat out. Uh, during this the, the pandemic, yeah, like I said earlier, all these, the, all these theaters and, and, and film, uh, all these uh, production companies and stuff like that that are, and studios are deciding to put these movies out uh, on streaming platforms so that people don't have to go to the theaters. Um, it, to me, it feels kind of like a dick move and a pretentious fucking move for Christopher Nolan to like hold this back. Uh, it, it's There's not too many directors that aren't go, going along with this right now, and he's one of them. And it, to me, it just screams like, if I release this movie not in a theater, everybody's going to hate it because the fucking walls are going to fall down and everybody's going to start seeing what's actually what he actually does. And they're not going to have the big sound system or the big screen to hide anything to, to like hold up the movie anymore. And it's going to do bad, you know, and you get people in the theaters like, you know, like how often do you like get your money back in the theater? It's like if you're in the theater and you're watching a bad movie, it's got to be real bad for you to get up and go get your money back. If you're on streaming, like you don't like something, you just got to press the circle button on your PlayStation controller or your <laughs> remote, and you're out of that thing. You Pretty know, much. Like, you don't have to fucking watch any of it anymore. You know, and you can probably like, I don't know, you can probably get a refund. I don't know how you would, but you might be able to get a refund for it. But like, <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, it's so much easier to like get out of a movie when you're just watching on your on your TV. You know. It's like it's maybe people like watching it on in theaters are just going to be like, well, I'm already here and I might as well finish this piece of shit. Yeah. I mean, if I had, I don't know, there's definitely several points I felt like walking out of 1917, but. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking. Sorry to bring us back to that. Oh, I know. I don't even want to think about it, man. But it's I just chose like, to stay there. Well, because... look, here's the thing. That's why this podcast exists. Right. All right. Because 1917 is another movie that is like 10 out of 10, one of the most beautiful fucking things I've ever seen in my entire life. And they don't, people don't understand that they've been manipulated by a gimmick. Well, it's like, and it's another movie that insists upon itself. It's like, it told you that you're supposed to like it before you even saw it. Well, if you get a movie, if you make a movie and you get Roger Deakins to do the photography for it, it's going to look amazing. But Oh, yeah. The, po- the trailer, the freaking, uh, the 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 behind the scenes like all the poster everything it looked amazing it looked really good i was it was i came to you when i saw this trailer Mm -hmm. i came to you and i was like jordan i I remember i this is gonna be awesome like this movie like they nobody ever makes a world war one movie it's been you know like i i am very interested in the world one conflict i always have been it's been very fascinating to me and i've always wanted them to make one uh, about World War I, I, I couldn't wait. Sort of World I couldn't War wait movie. for this movie to come out. We saw it like on the first weekend, and within the first scene, I was like, "Fuck! Like, oh God, damn it! This is gonna suck!" <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Yeah. But yeah, like I said, you know, get Roger Deakins to to uh, photograph or do, be your director of photography. He's gonna be great. But if you don't have someone like, say, the Coen Brothers directing the film. And actually making a great film, along with the beautiful visuals, then you're really left with a, just an ultimately hollow experience. 
Yeah, it's like that leaves you disappointed and also it just angry. <laughs> just angers pissed off. Like, yeah, it was just I just felt like I wasted my money, but um to wrap up, to wrap, come back to Dunkirk here, there was a few things I wanted to say. Like, uh, this movie is uh, has just so many moments I feel of missed opportunity. Right. Um, there is a few things like, like I said, if this movie was just a little more historic, historically accurate, uh, you have a film here. Uh, you have a lot to work with, and I, I'm not going to say like every movie needs to be historical accurate. For one thing, for example, like like of course I'm not trying to be nitpicky about historical act like you know inaccuracies here, but when if it was more historically accurate, you would have much more stuff to work with. For example, like you know, obviously Braveheart isn't historically accurate all the way. You know, even Saving Prior Ryan is not the historically... Patriot. The Patriot is not historically accurate, but they're great films because, God damn it, Mel Gibson, you know, story structure. They're, they're entertaining. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that man can make a great fucking movie. I don't care, like, what he says over the phone about the Jewish people. <laughs> like, you know, yes, that's awful, and he should be punished for that, but you can't say he doesn't make great movies. He does. He makes amazing films. Exactly. But um, watch Apocalypto. Yeah, it's just it's, there's no contest. Like I, I wish Mel Gibson would have directed Dunkirk. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the last film. But well, well, actually, come to think of it, the last film Mel Gibson did direct was Hacksaw Ridge. Oh uh, yeah, which is a World War II film. That's originally what this podcast was going to be about. It was going to be uh, uh, 100 episodes about Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah, right. <laughs> and depending on how successful or how how uh, the responses to this, we might pivot to that. Right. <laughs> I kind of liked Hacksaw Ridge. It wasn't. It was. Okay. It was a bit. It was okay. It was a bit schlocky from time to time, but I thought it held up. It was. You know, it was better than this movie. Oh yeah. Um, but the thing is, is that like there's so many missed opportunities in Dunkirk. Uh, for example, one historical fact is that there was the during the evacuation there was British and French generals kind of having to work with each other to coordinate the evacuation, and they fucking hated each other. They didn't like each other at all. They disagreed about everything. And that's a real, like, I wish I would have had a scene of that. A scene, like, of them trying to work out this monumental plan. Because it's not like they planned to have an evacuation there and stuff. They were, they were literally, like, the armies were retreating. And they had to retreat to this town. And then they were like, okay, now what the fuck do we do? And so they had to scramble and they were like, I guess we got to come get you. And stuff, so they had to scramble for, and they had like a week to like scramble a bunch of boats that were obviously like having to like bob and weave around submarines and mines and all sorts and aircraft. They're having to get over there, and it was a crazy undertaking that these guys had to do. And we didn't get any of that. We got two generals standing on a dock saying that the war is going on, and <laughs> it's it's you know the men are getting restless. It's like no fucking shit. There's planes like shooting you from the sky. You're on a beach. You got nowhere to nowhere to go. Yeah, exactly. I just feel like nothing really amounts to much with that. You know, you you, you have all this stuff, right? That on the surface level is is very interesting. You know, you have soldiers struggling to reach safety after jumping ship. You have regular folk trying desperately. You know, on paper, to it save sounds people good. fighting for the country. You have young men waiting nervously on the docks and on the beach and not knowing what may be coming if they're going to be attacked again by another plane. You don't know who's going to die or who's going to live. 
you don't even really have like the soldiers sort of like blaming the higher ups in which during Dunkirk they did because the higher ups spent more time arguing with each other without being productive. And I don't even really, I feel like the soldiers were just like, all right, I guess we're standing here. All right, I guess we got to wait. All right, I guess we got to jump off the ship. All right, I guess we got to like, you know, hide in this place. You know, it's like nobody ever like shows any resentment for like the people that are coordinating this whole thing. Right. Well, in a sequence, or I should say, in a scene where you have people nervously waiting around, you don't feel that. You just see a bunch of extras sitting around. That's it. Yeah. It's just a bunch of extras sitting around. There's really nothing in this film that gets me, you know, with some exceptions, like we were talking about with the, the aerial combat scenes. There's really nothing here that gets me that invested in what's going on. There's really no buildup or unity. Things just happen in the course of, I think this film's, it's under two hours. It's actually one of the shorter war movies I've ever seen. It's like an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah, I mean, how long can you show scenes of guys standing on the fucking beach waiting for a boat? You could, in theory, do that for a really, really long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I imagine, like, Dunkirk, in, the YouTube 10-hour version. But there would be a way to do that in... It, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, like, there's so many scenes in here where we have, like, the long, sweeping, sort of, like, uh, like cinemat- cinematographer's dream kind of shots, you know, where you're trying to, like, usually when you do shots like that, when you do these grandiose, you're trying to show scope. Like, uh, for example, the movie which came out 10 years prior to this film, uh, Atonement. Right. It's a great film. Uh, it's, it's definitely like in my top, like, you know, my, my top 100 for sure. Um, there is a scene where, uh, it shows the Dunkirk, uh, evacuation or something similar, at least. Is it Dunkirk? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it shows the actual evacuation and it is much, much more accurate to like what it actually looked like. I mean, it is, it is a crazy scene, but it's, it's like a long, it's like, but it's like one scene. It's like a tracking shot that goes all the way around the beach and it shows all the, the clutter and the chaos and the mud and the blood. It shows all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's actually a pretty, it's a pretty harrowing scene. And it's, I mean, it's not just the, the people there, you know, you see the chaos of the whole situation and you have the, the commanders, I guess they're, they're destroying their own vehicles they're right, shooting the horses. Yeah, in the they're head. destroying the vehicles so the Germans so, can't use them. They're they're killing the horses because they can't take them with them. And that's you fucked know? up. It's it's hard. And I, in that one scene that lasts like what six minutes? It's about five minutes. Five or so. minutes. It tells more. It has more character and tells more story than Christopher Nolan can do in ninety minutes. Yeah, absolutely. you know, it's it's you, you can get the and entire. That's not even what Atonement is about. <laughs> no, it's just one. It's just happening in the background. Like the movie isn't even about that Dunkirk at all. It's just it's following a character, and he happens to go there and be in the war. And uh, it's just that in that one scene, which is not even a part of the main plot, uh, it tells more about that entire event than a whole movie dedicated to it does. And it's just how many missed opportunities are we going to have here? You know, like how many misrepresentations? And I think at the end of the day, the reason why I, I really this 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 irks me more is that it's just disrespectful to the people that went through it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, it's just disrespectful to the people because you're not showing what they went through. You're not showing it. You're making it look like it wasn't that bad. You're making it look like all that stuff when they came home and they're all fucked up with PTSD and stuff. And they're all like messed up um, that, oh, well, you just kind of, I mean, it wasn't that bad. You got shot at a little bit. You had to, you had to jump in the water. I guess that kind of sucked. It was cold probably, <laughs> you know, like, oh no. You know, like, it just, it's just, I just feel like it's a slap in the face to, like, the great men and women who, like, went through that, that, that horrible time in our history, you know? And it's like, I I don't understand why people don't see that. Right. Exactly. And that's one thing that's a little frustrating about talking about this movie. And this is one of the reasons why we want to talk about this film was, it's just because it was pretty much universally praised. I had a very hard time finding any negative. There's not even anything or, negative about Christopher Nolan or just Christopher Nolan in on, on the internet, you know, and like, it's just, I tried. Of, yeah, we tried, you know, and it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, we're not like, we're not like these, uh, like super, what's the, what's the word? Like just cynical dudes that are, are just like, they'll just pick apart anything, you know, and stuff. It's just like, you know, it's just, we we feel like the quality of things of, of film and art and stuff like that have just been going just down and down and down and down and down. Yeah. And it's just like the bar for film is getting lower and lower and lower. The bar for music gets lower, like everything. It's just like, it feels like real, like obviously with like film and music and all kinds of stuff like that, there's great stuff out there. The problem is, is that it's just not in the forefront. You have to look around. Like, you can always find great music and great film. You just got to do the work. You have to do a little bit of effort, and you got to find it. It's out there, you know? But the films that have are taking are putting them in the forefront, and especially films about, like, historical periods that are very near and dear to some people that actually have affected people and are still affecting people to this day. Dunkirk still affects people and families to this day. Um, I believe has a bit of a responsibility, to portray it correctly and portray it in a way that's respectful. Yeah, I think a, a better example of, let's say, a war film that, you know, besides Saving Private Ryan and such, that that really show respect for the events that they're portraying. I'd say The Pianist. The Pianist, I would say uh, Flags of Our Fathers and the Letters from Iwo Jima. You know, as bad as this, uh, Letters to Iwo Jima is a, is a fantastic film that, that really, I think, does hit the nail on the head for the most part, uh, at least from my perspective. Obviously, I'd say pretty much all the war films that Clint Eastwood has directed. Oh, yeah, he's good at those. Oh, he's definitely excellent. good at those. Because, I mean, because when Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood is a patriotic guy, you know, he's going to, he's going to put some love into it. He's going to put some real effort into it. He's not going to, like, lackadaisy fucking slap together a movie, you know what I mean? Like Christopher Nolan will. I just like that Clint Eastwood actually had the balls to make a film from the American perspective with Flags of Our Fathers and then release a film a little bit later, which took place during the same time period with a primarily Japanese cast and mostly spoken in Japanese yeah. with English subtitles. Which I think Letters to Iwo Jima is... I, I always like... Um, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for this. Like, and this actually does happen. There's a scene in Hacksaw Ridge where this happens, you know, is I really enjoy, or not enjoy, but I really respect, uh, like, scenes that are war movies that take the time to 
make people realize that the enemy is still a person. It's still another human being that you're fighting against. That human being has a family. That human being has a, has a mom and a dad. They got probably have kids. You know what I mean? They're, or they're probably kids themselves. You know what I mean? It's like they are still human beings at the end of the day. You know, and there's a scene in Hacksaw Ridge where the medic, because Hacksaw Ridge is famously about a, a famous medic. Yeah, he's who, a pacifist. Who is a pacifist. He was a conscientious, conscientious objector. Yeah, but there's a scene where he treats an enemy soldier. Mm-hmm. And the enemy soldier is like, whoa, like, I didn't know Americans, like, did this. And it's like, you know, yeah, you know. And there's also a scene in Letters to Iwo Jima where they take uh, uh, an American prisoner and they have, like, a connection moment, you know, between two of them. They, have, they come to an understanding. There's a bit of a connection between them two. And they realize, hey, well, this guy's got a family at home, too. He's writing to his mom just like I write to my mom. Right. You we know? don't necessarily know the circumstances that led him up to the point of, of being here. Right. A lot of these people were forced to. Exactly. And, and you know, I, I do like it when war films take the time to, like, do that. Because, like, some, some, when they don't, sometimes they just get a little bit, uh, you know. Black and white? <laughs> yeah. They get a little bit, I don't know, like, this, like very dehumanizing for, like, a lot of stuff. It's, like, it's almost like a weird, like, it's, it kind of becomes propaganda in a way, you know. Like, some movies that I even like are kind of propaganda-y, like, like Black Hawk Down and stuff like that. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like, yeah, it, it, it's it's those movies that kind of portray, like, the enemy as these, like, just, just Savages. savage, de- like, subhuman or, like, less intelligent or less inferior people, you know? And I like Black Hawk Down a lot. I'm not saying that it, it's, like, a malicious film or it does this maliciously, but it's, like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a thin line that I think a movie, like a war film, has to walk. Because, you know, it's like, you could be talking about something that happened, like, 30 years ago, and those people are, like, our friends now, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's a, you know, how are they going to feel about this coming out, you know? Like, but um, Dunkirk, I feel like, just doesn't, it doesn't serve a purpose. Like, it does, at the end of the day, uh, it doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't, it doesn't, like bring any new light into the event it doesn't uh it doesn't give like any sort of like pause to what happened it doesn't really serve a purpose i would say it doesn't really serve a purpose beyond just being some kind of technical achievement i mean it's loud you know it's mostly there (laughs) just to serve the ego of the director you know it's it's and so much of this just feels like uh, it, everything was so the way things were shot were so circumstantial and those circumstances would be um, it has to be close enough to Christopher Nolan's hotel that he's staying in it has to be in a place where it's got a nice concrete floor for him to set up the IMAX equipment it's got to be uh, in Dunkirk because as long as it's in Dunkirk like he gets points for that for some reason you know and it's just I just feel like this whole movie is just ego stroking off the wall yeah pretty much and it's just interesting that this film is actually the highest grossing world war ii film ever made of course it is yeah it made well i mean relative to what like well if you think about all the world war ii films ever which there are many (laughs) that you know it's it's all There's, marketing, dude. It's like that. I'm telling you, like I was excited about this movie when I was hearing about it. 
Yeah, you know, same here. It's, it's all marketing. It got us into the theater. It got me into the theater to see it because I, I was excited about it. And I'm sure it got everybody else into the theater. And I didn't ask for my money back. I just, you know, like I said, like it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm not going to bring myself like if I'm in a restaurant and this is just me. I'm not saying this is like raw, like you're a bad person for doing this. But this is just personally what I do is that if I get my food and there's something a little bit wrong with it, I don't send it back. I just don't. Unless it's like something awful, like really, really bad where I can't eat it, then yeah. But I'm not going to send it back because it gave me white bread instead of wheat bread. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just going to eat it. Like, cause like, you know, you gotta, you gotta talk to the waitress. You gotta do that thing where it's like, oh, you know, but I'm not saying you guys are bad. I'm just saying that like, I really want wheat bread and this, this, that. And she's like, all right, okay. You know, and then you gotta wait extra time for your food to come out and it just becomes a whole thing. And the manager comes around and he's like, he's like, so like, you, you, you're not happy with the bread and you know, like, we'll fill out this, can you please fill out this comment card? And like, it becomes a whole ordeal. You know, and sometimes it's easier just to eat the fucking white bread, you know, and that's how I feel in movies sometimes where it's like, I'm not going to get up and like go to the manager and like be that guy because like, you know, be that guy that's like, you know, in line and you're behind him and, and he's like talking to the manager about something and you're just trying to buy a ticket or something, you know, it's like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't inconvenience people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, so I'm kind of same, uh, you know, I've had some pretty bad experiences at restaurants over the years, but I mean, that's it. It's just a, it's just a fucking meal. It's it. It's, it's whatever. Who cares? You know? And that's the way I feel in the theater too. I'm just like, I'm not, I'm just like, fuck I'm it, not going to you know? go home, get on Yelp afterwards and write Absolutely a negative not. review. No, no, no. I'm going to save my anger for years I'm just for not a gonna, podcast. I'm just not going <laughs> to go there again. Right. <laughs> or if I go, I'll get something different. Right, exactly. You know, I just, um, it's just, it's just hard because uh, um, I feel like the odd one out. Like when I, when, when I see these movies and I just think they suck because all it is is praised. All it is is 10 out of 10. And I just cannot for the life of me figure out why. Yeah, exactly. And this is the same for pretty much every Christopher Nolan movie. The ones that are the the ones that are have all come out over the last ten or fifteen years. All right, so I think that I think that just about wraps it up for Dunkirk. Um, we're gonna be probably coming back to Christopher Nolan for another another one of his movies. Uh, I don't want to do too much on him, uh, but because I, I think that this, this this movie kind of encompasses everything that I don't like about him. <laughs> like, it's sort of like it's all in one little package. Um, you know, we'll probably talk about uh, maybe one or two of his other films and then move on. But, but yeah, any final thoughts, Jordan? Yeah, I think you pretty much summed it up right there. I don't really have much else to say about the film other than it's something that really could have been great and just ended up being very disappointing. And I'm just trying to understand what everybody liked about it so much. All right. Well, we'll be, uh, we'll be back to uh, look at something else that everybody seems to like and we hate. <laughs> yeah. About a certain uh, caped crusader. Oh yeah. A certain uh, flying flying uh, nocturnal mammalian man i heard that heath ledger does a very good job as the jokester yeah i hear that he's joking all over the place uh hey i'm joking yeah i'm fucking joking here <laughs>
<laughs> All right. See you later, fuckers. All right. See you guys.